Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, Episode 4. On today's episode, I talk with Professor David Brassou, DeWitt Wallace Professor of Mathematics at McAllister College and President of the MAA. We discuss how to change your calculus class, how to make your students read, and also just how old the MAA really is. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest today is Professor David Brassou, the DeWitt Wallace Professor of Mathematics at McAllister College and the President of the Mathematical Association of America. Hello, Professor. How are you this day? I'm doing very well, thank you. That's uh, very good. So I wanted to just start off a little bit of questions about your uh, research interests. Now, last time around, I had uh, Professor George Andrews from Penn State on. He gave a little bit of an idea of what partition theory is. And your research interests on your website say that you're especially interested in partition theory. So I was wondering what in uh, partition theory you specifically work with. Uh, I'm sorry, you're, you're cutting in and out. Um, but I, I gathered that you were asking about partition theory? Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, there, there are all kinds of questions that come up in partition theory. Of, so the, the basic problem is one of, given an integer, how many ways can you write it as, as a sum of positive integers? And uh, I first got interested in it in, in my, my doctoral dissertation, where I was essentially looking at, at quadratic forms. So you're looking at polynomials of degree two in several variables, and uh, you're asking how many ways can you represent uh, a given integer uh, by one of these quadratic forms. And then that spilled over into lots of other questions, and the thing that I really like about partition theory is that it, it ties into so many other areas. You can go down generating functions, and then you're immediately talking about um, orthogonal polynomials and, and traditional special functions from the 19th century. Uh, you're very often looking at basic analogs of, of standard special functions. Um, it's got connections into representation theory and, and uh, modern algebra. It's got connections into quantum mechanics. There just are all kinds of areas that, that tie together there. And I've been interested in dabbling in as many of them as I possibly can. Of the side areas that you have uh, worked in, which was the uh, one that led to the most interesting results for you? Well, I, I think the combinatorics of, uh, of partition theory is where I've done a lot of my work, uh, very often doing very combinatorial proofs of generating function identities. Um, but also doing some work in, in uh, just finding results that couldn't be found any other way, but really looking at the combinatorics of the situation and exploring that. When did you first realize that mathematics was where you were going to end up spending your academic career? Um, well, 
the first time I really got turned on to mathematics was actually in seventh grade. I had a, an absolutely fantastic seventh grade teacher who I, I think recognized that I had some potential and encouraged me to come in after class and uh, gave me interesting problems to work on. The, the one I remember most vividly is, uh, you know, he, he explained the rule for deciding whether an integer is divisible by three or nine. You add up the digits, and if that's divisible by three, the number has to be divisible by three, and the same thing works for nine. And uh, he challenged me to see if I could, I could explain why this rule works and then to explore a little further and see what's going on with 11 and, and 7. And I really enjoyed doing that kind of explanation and, and trying to find uh, the, the, the justification for why this is always going to work. So that, that was one of a number of problems that, that he set for me to work on. So that really clued me in that I was interested in mathematics and intrigued by it, um, although when I got to college, I wasn't certain I was going to major in mathematics. It was something that I was good at. Um, I naturally continued to take math classes. Uh, I wasn't at all sure that that's the direction I would go in. Um, but I wound up uh, deciding that I wanted to get out of college in less than, than four years. I decided to go for three years. And if I was going to do that, the only way I could complete the major in three years as if I did it in mathematics, because I'd come in with, with AP credit and was, was moving through math courses pretty quickly. And so I, I sort of decided to major in mathematics by, by default. I don't know if, does that answer your question? Oh, yes. Yes, it definitely does. <laughs> now, uh, you are at McAllister College, which is a liberal arts university, a very well-known one at that. Uh, now, I know that you've spent some time at other universities that are uh, centered more around or less liberal arts and more on the hard sciences. What differences do you feel is there at being at a liberal arts college uh, compared to a different one? Um, well, I was at Penn State for 17 years, and now I'm in my, my 16th year at, at McAllister. And uh, they're, they're totally different. The, what I love about a place like McAllister is that um, there's only one real focus for what goes on at McAllister. It's all about teaching undergraduates. And at a place like Penn State, there are lots of things that, uh, that they're trying to accomplish. Um, it's a place for teaching undergraduates. It's a place for teaching graduate students. It's a place for doing research as a major state university. It also has uh, obligations to the people of the state of Pennsylvania. There are a number of things that Penn State is doing, and there are a reason why they get bundled together in a large university, because very often uh, these are these are things that, that can support each other. But there are times when they conflict with each other. So, for example, the, the, the pressure to, to get research grants and to publish papers uh, can sometimes get in the way of focusing on undergraduate teaching. And the beauty of a place like McAllister is that there really are never questions about that. If it comes down to, is it more important to spend time on teaching or on research, you make sure that you're doing an excellent job in the teaching, and the research is something that the faculty are expected to do. But it definitely takes second place. 
And in a place like Penn State, there's so many things that the institution is doing um, that often desirable goals get shortchanged. So uh, that's that's really it. And one of the things that convinced me to make the move to McAllister is the fact that at a big university like Penn State, uh, you don't have a lot of close contact with, with the undergraduates. Uh, you may see them in one class. If you're lucky, it's a relatively small class where you get to know them. But to see the same student in more than one class is very unusual. And here at McAllister, I see the same students in class after class. The offices are right next to the classrooms. You get to know the students. You watch them develop over the full, full four years. You really get to know them as individuals. Um, they also get to know the, the professors much better. And, and so you, you build a real rapport between the faculty and students that's not possible at a place like, uh, like Penn State. Now, speaking of uh, teaching uh, undergraduates, you have written uh, quite a few articles for the Committee on the Undergraduate Program of Mathematics. And I was uh, hoping to ask you a few questions about uh, a couple of the articles that were written in there. Now, sure. One of the specific things that you did talk about was that half of uh, undergraduate mathematics is college algebra. and In, you, in terms you, of what's taught, yeah. And you specifically uh, commented on uh, that it doesn't get quite enough importance in how it's taught. I was wondering if you could uh, explain a little bit on your ideas for that. Well, the, the, the problem is that the senior faculty usually don't want to teach college algebra. And so what happens is that the uh, the college algebra courses usually get relegated either to adjunct faculty or to graduate students. And uh, in most, especially the large universities where most of these college algebra classes are, are being taught, where many, many of the students are taking college algebra, um, the kinds of people who have, have really had deep mathematical experience and really understand what it means to, to know mathematics and to be prepared for the higher mathematics, those are often not the people who are teaching these classes. And so you, you've got a, a real breakdown in communication there between those who are teaching the classes and those who are most aware of what these students really need and often how they can, they can best be assisted in preparing for the higher level courses. Now, college algebra is one of the earliest courses that most people would take in mathematics at a university unless they're going straight to calculus. And you comment that there's a certain gap between how math is taught in high school and how it's taught in college. Uh, Specifically, there's a, there's a focusing on what the students don't know in college instead of improving and expanding upon what they learned in high school. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really worried about the, the tremendous push to get students into calculus before they graduate from high school. The, the numbers are incredibly large. Uh, it's now something on the order of 600,000 high school students take calculus each year. And... For many students, this is what they should be doing. There are many students who are ready for it. They take it in order to be able to get to college or university and be advanced um, to, to get college credit for, for doing college-level work in high school, and, and the program works for them beautifully. 
I worry about the students who feel that they have to accelerate and often shortchange their preparation in order to take calculus in high school in the mistaken belief that the only way you're ever going to survive calculus in college is if you've already studied it in, in high school. And so many of these students often are not really prepared for a college-level course in calculus when they take it um, in, in their high school. And they haven't filled in those gaps then when they, when they get to college. So that they've, they've taken calculus in high school. They may even have passed the calculus in high school, but they don't really have the kind of foundation that they can build on to succeed in further mathematics when they get to college. There also is a problem with the high school calculus because of the fact that it's evaluated by a, a large national exam, the advanced placement exam. I, I think the world of that exam. For six years I was on the committee that, that writes that exam and I chaired it for three of those years. Um, but I also recognize the limitations of any examination that's sent out to that large a group of students. Almost inevitably, that there's a certain repetition in the types of problems. It's, it's possible uh, to teach to the test, uh, to know what kinds of questions are going to be asked, and, and to drill students on those rather than building the student understanding. And I see a lot of students who are able to do well in the AP calculus, again, without really understanding the calculus in the way that they should know it as they, they go on to college. Um, talking about this, this testing what students don't know rather than what they know, um, there is this disjunction then, because I believe that the way high school calculus is set up and evaluated, it does not necessarily articulate well into what's going on in the colleges, unless you've got a really good student and a really good teacher in high school. There are a lot of those, but there are a lot of cases where you're not getting that particular mix. And what often happens is that a student who is really very capable and has learned a lot still has some gaps in their preparation. And there is a tendency in a lot of the placement examinations to focus in on those gaps and send students back to college algebra or pre-calculus or sometimes even developmental mathematics, uh, even though they really are beyond that point. And I wish that more work was being done for the colleges and universities to be able to pick up those students where they are and certainly address the gaps, address the weaknesses and the problems in their background, but give these students a sense that they are still moving forward, um, that, um, that, that they do not have to to back up to a place that they thought they had already passed, uh, build on what they do know, address the weaknesses that they have, and find ways of keeping moving them forward. Because so many students get so discouraged when they get to college, and uh, the placement examinations place them back in courses that, that they really do not feel they belong in. Now, I'm... I TA at this, this point in my mathematical career, and one thing that I can definitely tell from the students is that they don't really pay much attention to the book. Now, you wrote about having something called a reading reflection in some of the classes that you instruct. I was wondering if you could explain a bit what that is and how it 
uh, helps advance the knowledge of your students. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, that if if the students simply come into a class with no preparation, uh, it's very unlikely that they're going to learn very much in that class. And it, it's again part of the problem of the jump from what goes on in high school to what goes on in college. I've I've taught in high school. Uh, back in the early 90s, I, I taught an AP calculus class at the State College Area High School. And that really showed me, drove home the difference between the way mathematics is taught in high school and the way it is in college. Because you've got so many contact hours with the students in high school, it's possible for the students really to learn in the classroom. I could watch my students and see them reaching that point of understanding. That very seldom happens in the in the college classroom if the students haven't done any preparation. If they're coming in and they're getting this first exposure to an idea, it's going to take a while working with that idea before it becomes meaningful to them. And so what happens in, in most college classes is that the students come in, they're introduced to an idea. Ideally, what they should do is then go back to their rooms and really wrestle with that idea until it, it's meaningful for them. Um, unfortunately, most students don't really know how to do that kind of wrestling. And so what I've very consciously been doing, and, and the best teachers that I know are doing this also, is, is really trying to move that wrestling aspect, that place where I can really guide the students effectively, back into the classroom. And the only way to do that is if they're getting their first introduction to, to the ideas of a particular lesson before they come in. So reading the textbook ahead of time, beginning to think about the text and the questions that are going to be dealt with ahead of time is absolutely critical. And the reading reflection is, is one way of accomplishing this. Um, and it's, it's very simple, it's very low overhead, and yet I found it to be very effective. Um, I, I tell the students what section we're going to be looking at for the next, uh, the next class period. Uh, they're required to read through it. I have uh, three fairly straightforward questions. Um, well, actually, two of them will depend on the reading, so I'm asking them something about the reading just to make sure that they've read it and thought a little bit about it. Uh, the third question is usually what was the most difficult point or what was the main point of, uh, of this particular lesson. And then I also, also ask them for any problems or difficulties that they've had with the material to alert me to that. Um, we use Moodle at McAllister. I've also done this with, with email messages. So the students communicate their answers to my questions and anything that they have particularly particular difficulty with about an hour before the class period so that I have time to go through it. Students get credit if they've done this. They get no credit if they haven't. I don't grade the answers. I just check whether they've, they've responded or not. And, um, and then that gives me a good idea of where the students are confused on those, those first few problems that I've asked them. I, I can see if they're misunderstanding some of the terminology or what's going on or what the point of this section was. 
I can see some difficulties that they've had. And so this has forced them to do at least some work thinking about this material before they come into class. And the class period then is, is much more successful and useful and productive if the students have come in having done some preparation work. Now, one of the most interesting things of uh, in those articles was the article you had about uh, redoing the introductory calculus class or being on the committee to change the way uh, the first calculus class is taught at McAllister. Now, if you could, you could explain uh, a bit what uh, the thought process that went into uh, changing the way it was taught. Well, we decided to change the way it was taught because we discovered that what we were doing didn't really fit the students who were taking that. Um, we actually, the, this started out by looking at data of who took Calculus one, and uh, then what subsequent courses they took. And what we found was that of the students who wound up as math majors or the students who wound up taking our junior, senior level courses in mathematics, almost none of them had taken Calculus one. Now, we're a fairly elite small school. Um, there are a lot of the students who come in who have already had calculus in high school and done well on the AP exam. Uh, they're coming in and they're passing out of at least the first semester of calculus. What we actually found is that among our math majors and among those who took a, a junior or senior level course in mathematics, only 4% of them had taken calculus one. What we also found is that most of the students who did take Calculus one never took Calculus two. Uh, it's actually the, the percentage that we had um, a few years ago when we did this study was that 70% of the students who took Calculus one never took Calculus two, even though they had uh, the students who had taken and passed Calculus one never took Calculus two. And when we looked at the majors of those students, it's because they were majoring in biology or economics or, or a field that, uh, that didn't require more than one semester of calculus. So what we saw is that we were teaching this year-long sequence of calculus one followed by calculus two to students who were not following it through as a year-long sequence. So the students who were taking the first semester which was designed then to lead into Calculus two, never took the Calculus two, and the students taking Calculus two, which was supposed to be built on what we taught at Calculus one, they'd never taken that. So if the students were not taking it as a year-long sequence, it didn't make sense to teach it as a year-long sequence. So we really started to focus in those students who are now taking our Calculus one, what is it that they really need? And the students who are now taking our calculus too, what is it that they really need? And then designing the courses around that. That said, I should point out that those 4%, even though it's relatively small, the ones who do take calculus one and then calculus two, are, are important, an important population. Uh, these, these often are students who are coming um, from disadvantaged high schools. Uh, they haven't had a chance to take calculus in, in high school, even if they were ready for it. And uh, we want to be able to enable those students to, to go through that entire sequence. But we realize that the focus in these courses needs to be on the students 
who are either not going on to the next course or haven't taken the previous course. In particular, we spent a lot of time focusing in on that first calculus course and redesigned it so that it would be a useful course for the students who never go on to the next course. And the problem with most Calculus one instruction is that it, it does differential calculus, it introduces the integral, maybe has time to talk about a few simple techniques of integration, and then it just cuts off abruptly at that point with no sense of closure, no real sense of, okay, this is why you've been studying calculus. And as we looked at the students who were just taking Calculus one, we, we realized that what they needed for, the economics majors, um, the biology majors, what they really needed for is, is dynamical modeling. They need to be able to understand what a differential equation is or what a system of differential equations is, what, what it means to have a, a solution to a differential equation or a system of them. Um, how to read it, uh, how to think about the model, the implications of the model that's encoded in the differential equation. And so that's where we put the real focus. So we turned that first calculus course into one that really focuses on the, the modeling aspects, the differential equations, uh, calculus as a, as, as a tool for studying dynamical systems, if a student's never going to go beyond Calculus one, they don't need to be drilled in the methods of differentiation and integration. They need to understand what calculus is about and how it gets used and how to read statements about calculus that, that are out there in the scientific literature. And so that's what we did with the first course. And then the second course, take students from a wide variety of backgrounds, and the, the intent of the second course then is, is to bring them up to speed on the, the, the deeper ideas as well as, as making sure they're conversant in the techniques that then enable them to go on to, to higher level math courses. Now, uh, I, when I was doing my undergraduate, I did take uh, the full calculus sequence, including Calc 1. I have to say that that to me at least sounds like a much more interesting way of teaching. Have you found that teaching it in this way, focusing on the differential uh, and you know differential equations, dynamic systems, that that has caused any more people to perhaps uh, go into the higher level mathematics afterwards? Um, not sure. We, we've always had very good numbers of students going on and, and taking the higher math courses. Um, I think there's been a slight increase. Uh, there certainly has not been any decrease in the students going on to the higher mathematics courses. Uh, but I think there may have been some increase. There's certainly there are a lot of students now who take that first course and get excited about mathematics and want to do something more. Uh, what we often, uh, what we usually direct them to actually is their second math course is a, a course in statistical modeling. Uh, that uses the things that they've seen in that, that first course. One of the other things that we do in the applied mathematics course is do functions of several variables and begin to think about higher dimensional spaces, uh, laying some of the groundwork that's needed so that when they take a statistics course, they can do multivariate statistics. And uh, so we usually direct them into that. And then quite a few of them will go on and, and take a second course in calculus 
or continue on and take further statistics courses. Uh, but it certainly has improved student attitudes as they're coming out of that first course. And at least anecdotally, I don't know what the actual data on this is, it appears that we're getting more students uh, going on into higher mathematics. Uh, we've been speaking about college and high school education, but specifically college and high school education here in the United States. You spent some time in the Peace Corps and taught out in the West Indies. What? How were teaching the students there different, and how was it the same as teaching the students here? Well, it, it was a totally different situation because I was in a village school. I was teaching um, first and second form in the British system, which would be the, the age range of seventh and eighth grade, uh, to students who had come out of, uh, quite frankly, very poor elementary schools. And so I was spending most of my time teaching basic arithmetic. I did have some good students that I was able to, to do some real seventh and eighth grade level mathematics with. Um, but it really was, was a different situation because the students were so poorly prepared in mathematics at the time that I was there. It was the, the British system, of course, in which the students prepare for the ordinary level exams. And then if they do well on that, they then do what's typically a two-year program for the advanced level exams. And the second year of the advanced level is, is equivalent to the first year of college. So by the time they're entering college in, in a British system, uh, they would be more advanced than students entering college in, in the United States. Um, the only students I saw who were up at that level were actually some of the teachers. Uh, in, uh, in Antigua, where I was at that time, you did not actually have to have a, a college degree in order to teach high school. You needed to have your O-level examination, and you needed two years of teacher training college. And uh, you could get, uh, get promotion if you picked up your A-level exam. So there were several of the teachers on the island that I was, um, I was working with tutoring to help them prepare to take the A-level examination. So I, I got to know um, the O and A-levels and kind of what that mathematics involved from doing that, but I never actually taught it. Uh, uh, you did do, uh, I mean, I'm sure that you've done many others, but you did do at least one other type of teaching, and that's you did a teaching company series. Uh, yeah. it, it was called the Queen of Sciences History of Mathematics. Now, I was wondering, since for those you're not taking people, who, or you're not going to be teaching people specifically who uh, are going into a classroom, you don't have them in front of you. You're teaching them through lectures, either on uh, tape or, or videotape or audio, and they're not necessarily going to have the same background as you know that students have if they meet prerequisites for a university. And so I was wondering, how did you uh, prepare your lectures for the teaching company in order to make sure that you were able to reach out to the audience that they would be aiming for? Well, what, what I actually did, and, and I, I really enjoyed preparing for this, because I, the audience that the teaching company reaches out to is a, is a very important audience, which is educated people who want to learn about something that they maybe know just a little bit about and, and, and they're interested in learning more, not to get a degree, not to earn credits, but just because they're curious about it. 
And so it was fun to think about how to put together a course for, for people who don't know much mathematics. The real key to the preparation is that after, after working on the course for a while, I then actually taught it at McAllister um, on an informal basis to people in the neighborhood and McAllister alumni who happen to be in the Twin Cities. So for, let's see, it was for 12 weeks, uh, we met for an hour. This was from 7.15 to 8.15 in the morning. And uh, I, I was amazed. We, uh, gee, we started out with about 50 people, and there were maybe 25 or 30 who stayed until the end of the 12-week period. And these were you know, just people who were curious about learning about the history of mathematics. And so I got a chance to really try out a lot of ideas. I got a lot of good feedback from the audience, uh, from, from the people who were in that class. And they were mostly the kinds of people that the teaching company is, is trying to reach. Uh, these were mostly um, retired people or, or people who had some free time who could come out early in the morning to hear somebody talk about the history of mathematics for an hour. And uh, that was, it was great preparation. And I kind of wish I could do more of that. In many ways, I, I like that alumni class much better than the teaching company itself because standing up in front of a couple of TV cameras where you can't actually see any human beings um, is, I don't know, I find that very, very difficult because I'm not getting that person-to-person that -person feedback that I can get from an audience. I can understand that. I seem to spend a lot of time talking into a microphone myself. <laughs> Now, uh, you did that teaching company lecture series on history of mathematics, and in the write-ups of the textbooks that you've done, you quite often mention that you use uh, the history and the story of mathematics in your textbook. What is it about the history? And I, I happen to agree with the sentiment here, uh, at, at least the inclusion here, because I enjoy the history. But what is it specifically that you feel that makes it merit a large part of a textbook that you're writing on a subject? Well, I, I think, for one thing, the history of the subject really brings it alive to the students. Um, that it, it gives the mathematics a, a, a personal aspect that they can latch on to and, and realize that they're real people involved in this. It's not something that simply was, was handed down from the heavens. Something else that I think is very important in teaching is to communicate to students the fact that this mathematics is the result of, of decades or centuries or in some cases millennia of, of work by very talented individuals who, who gradually shaped it and refined it until it, it's come down to us in the form it is today. And so many students look at the mathematics that they're being taught and it's, it's so polished that they can't get a handle on it. That it, it seems to be beyond anything that they could ever conceive of creating. And so by looking at the history, looking at the stages of the development of these ideas, students can see that, that there were attempts and there were failures and there were partial ideas, and they really can see that this, this practice of, of creating mathematics is something that they are capable of doing. And that's one of the most important lessons that I want to get across. It's also very helpful to me as a teacher. As I look back over the history of the development of a subject, 
um, it gives me some real clues as to where the stumbling blocks are, where are the places that people got held up for a long time. If historically mathematicians and scientists had trouble making a certain step, I can expect that my students will have trouble doing that also. If there were certain historical examples that were particularly enlightening, I, I need to be aware of that and realize that they probably will be helpful to my students also. So there's a lot in the history that, that teaches me how I can approach the, the pedagogy. I, I definitely feel that it's nice to know that the best minds in the field have screwed up before. <laughs> yes. Now, I'd like to ask a little bit now about uh, the MAA. Now, you're the president of the MAA, and there's uh, bound to be some people listening who don't know what it is. And so if you could just give a short explanation on uh, what the Mathematical Association of America entails. Okay, well, the Math Association of America is a, a professional organization that focuses on college-level mathematics. And uh, actually, originally, it began with a journal, uh, the American Mathematical Monthly, uh, that was originally created to do expository mathematics, to, to take interesting mathematical ideas and write them up, um, mostly for people who are, who are mathematicians themselves, but also for, for very educated laymen. Um, it turned out that in order to support that journal, it was decided that it would be useful to have an organization that would be a professional society for college mathematics faculty, people who were particularly interested in college-level mathematics. And so that was done in, in 1915. Uh, the association came into being. The, the monthly itself, the journal, goes back into the 19th century. Um, and in 1915, uh, we began to, to build sections, so, um, so geographic regions of the country where mathematicians would come together to talk about mathematical ideas, to talk about what was going on in their classrooms, uh, to share those, and then support a national organization that helped make this possible. Over the years, the Mathematical Association has, has expanded its vision. In the 1940s, we began to do high school competitions, and the American Mathematical Competition, which is a, a series of high school examinations that eventually selects the students who go to the International Mathematical Olympiad, uh, that came into being. Uh, in the 1950s, it was realized that uh, mathematics education across the country was, was very scattered. Uh, it wasn't clear what courses should students should take as undergraduates, and the Math Association of America stepped in at that point. Uh, that's when the Committee on the Undergraduate Program in Mathematics was formed. Uh, some of the greatest mathematicians of, of that time um, people like, uh, like Tucker and Polya, um, other mathematicians of, of that caliber became involved in looking at what the undergraduate curriculum should be. There actually is a strong connection between the Advanced Placement Program and the MAI because it was the same group of people who formed the core of the Committee on the Undergraduate Program in Mathematics who also formed the core of the group that, that began the Advanced Placement Program in Calculus. 
And uh, so this idea of thinking about the undergraduate program, giving advice on, on how it could be taught, uh, how it should be taught, what it should entail, uh, that's been one of the roles of the Math Association of America since the 1950s. And then one of the great things that the, the Math Association got into in the early 1990s was really working with brand new faculty, uh, something that's called Project Next, uh, Next for New Experiences in Teaching, uh, that now takes about 100 brand new PhDs in mathematics and runs them through a series of workshops over a period of a little over a year that introduces them to what it's like and, and how to be effective as a college faculty member. Um, how do you find time for family and research and teaching? What are some of the, the best ideas out there about teaching? How do you go about getting a grant? Just all of this kind of basic knowledge that we sort of hope that all new faculty members will, will, will pull in one way or another, uh, was realized it would be really helpful to set up a program that does this for new faculty members. So the Project Next uh, works on a national basis with about 100 new faculty members each year. In addition to that, many of the sections spread around the country are also uh, have developed their own uh, local Next groups for the, the new faculty members who are not able to get into the national program. At least there's a local program that helps support them as they're making this transition into college teaching. So today, the Mathematical Association of America, we've got about 23,000 members. It's not just American. It, it is a truly international organization that focuses on college mathematics. It's interested in, in how we teach. It produces lots of materials and guides, publishes textbooks, um, provides uh, magazines like Math Horizons for undergraduate students. Uh, we have lots of help for setting up uh, undergraduate math clubs. Uh, it's also still very interested in expository mathematics, so the, the Mathematical Monthly, as well as uh, Mathematics Magazine and the College Math Journal, are out there just publishing interesting mathematics for, for people to, to learn about. So most of our members are college faculty members, but we have a lot of people who are just interested in mathematics, and, um, and, and serving them is an important part of what we do. Uh, in the most recent uh, MAA Focus, you had an article in there saying that one of the issue or one of the problems you felt is that a, that a lot of MAA members don't uh, understand that they have. Uh, the ability to tap into a bunch of MAA resources. So if there are uh, teachers out there who feel that they lack certain resources and they're a member of the MAA, how would they go about using those resources? Well, actually, one of the best ways of, of finding out about what's available is actually to go to, uh, to a meeting, either a section meeting in the state or region of the country, uh, or to a national meeting where you'll get a chance to see the books that are available, to look through the journals that are available, to hear talks uh, about what kinds of programs the MAA is, is currently offering. Uh, as we come out with guidelines, uh, officers of the MAA go out to the various sections and, and 
talk about what's going on. We'll hold panel discussions at national meetings. So going to meetings is, is a great way to network with other mathematicians, but also to find out about what the MAA is doing. Uh, there also is, is our website. And, and quite frankly, the website is not organized as efficiently as I'd like it to be. Um, but you can find all of the information that the MAA has available if, if you, you search through that, that website. That's also part of the purpose of Project Next, to take these new faculty members, and part of what they get to see is the kinds of, of information and resources that the MAA has available. Uh, you spoke of uh, national meetings. Is there a uh, national meeting for the MAA coming up anytime soon? Yeah, uh, the joint mathematics meeting. So this is a, uh, a meeting that is co-sponsored by the Math Association of America and the American Mathematical Society. That's going to be in January in San Francisco. Um, every January there is a joint meeting between the MAA and the AMS. And then the other national meeting that the MAA uh, puts on itself is MathFest, which is held in August each year. And this coming August, it's going to be in Pittsburgh. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time today, Professor. Oh, you're quite welcome, Sam. Well, that is it for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you wish to know more about the guest on this episode, please visit the blog at sccmathpodcast.blogspot.com and you can email me at sccmathpodcast at gmail.com with any recommendations or feedback. The music on this podcast is the song Pie by the band Hard and Firm from their album Horses and Grasses. You can find them at hardandfirm.com. Finally, this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license. Thanks for listening. Three, eight, four, four, six, zero, nine, five, five, zero, five, eight, two, two, three, one, seven, two, five, three, five.